everybody. This is Eric Krasno, and you are listening to the Plus One Podcast. I want to thank everyone for tuning in. Thank you for sharing the show with your friends. Thank you for sending the comments and messages. If you get a chance, please follow us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Leave a review. Send me a message. Krasplus1 at gmail.com. If you follow us on Spotify, you can also hear the playlists. They're connected to every single episode. Songs that I've picked out, the artists that I'm speaking with picks out, or some of the stuff is just what we've been talking about on the show. I want to give a shout out to Osiris Media. They helped me put this show together. They helped me get it out to the world, and they have a lot of other great content that you can find at OsirisPod.com. Today is a very special show for me. I have one of my all-time heroes on the show, Mr. George Porter Jr. I can honestly say that his band, The Meters, completely changed my life. They changed how I heard music, how I played music. There's a certain style and swagger and rhythm to The Meters that's unlike any other band. And in turn, they influenced every soul and funk and R&B band that happened after them. Every musician knows, put a meters thing on it. It means give it that swagger, that Zigaboo, George Porter, Leo, art thing. We all listen to their records like it's the Bible of funk music. They made many classic albums as the meters, but they were also the rhythm section of New Orleans. They created the rhythm tracks for people like Lee Dorsey, Dr. John, and numerous Alan Toussaint records. And more specifically, George played on records by Patti LaBelle, Robert Palmer, and many, many other huge artists that just wanted that New Orleans vibe. George has never stopped creating and touring. He's recorded and toured with his own band, George Porter and the Running Partners. He's got the George Porter Trio that still goes every single Monday at the Maple Leaf when it's open in New Orleans. There's the Funky Meters. There's Foundation of Funk, which I've had the honor of playing with on uh, various occasions. And he's on pretty much every super jam type of show that I've done in the last 10 years. He's an inspiration to so many of us because he still loves music to this day and loves playing, loves learning new music, loves playing with new artists. So we really look up to him and every time I get to play with him, I jump at the chance because there's a certain excitement that comes with playing with George that's unlike any other musician I play with. Because when we get on stage, we can completely trust him to take us somewhere cool. And we can pretty much take the set list and kind of throw it away. We all kind of know enough songs together that we have, you know, points where we can connect. But sometimes the best parts are that improv. And he's always willing to take a risk and go out on a limb and try something new, which I love. It's always exciting to be on stage with a guy like that. I'm very excited to get into this conversation, but first we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. All right, he's an amazing bass player, composer, vocalist, an original member of the legendary Meters, and one of the founders of funk music as we know it. I'd like to welcome today's plus one, Mr. George Porter Jr. So you've been staying busy. I mean, I've been seeing you, um, I think every Monday you play a live performance and kind of like notate, in, you're like your own commentator to a certain degree, which is uh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's I've been, yeah. Too, I've been tuning that's been, into that's those. That's been fun. It's cool because, you know, a lot of people know that 
you are one of the hardest working musicians I've ever known. Um, <laughs> I know that I can barely keep up with you, and uh, you have lapped me about a hundred times in terms of <laughs> how many gigs you've done and what you've done in your time period. And uh, it's inspiring for younger guys like me um, because, you know, not that you're that old, but the fact is that you have the energy, you've been doing it this long and you still love it and you still have the energy you're not jaded um and uh it inspires the rest of us uh because you have like the fire and excitement to keep playing all the time uh so i i know i'm always trying to absorb and learn from you when when i'm with you but uh, i'm curious like what you think that drive comes from i still i still love the music i still love playing yeah um you know and 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 all of those different configurations that we have been involved in you know as as as, has always i've never been in in, involved in a a a musical uh uh, event with you that that wasn't good you know wasn't fun fun to do you know yeah even though what we might have had four days of rehearsals to do it. <laughs> I always like the ones that we have the rehearsal before sound check or something like that. That's interesting because uh, my first time ever playing with you, I'm, I'm curious if you'll remember this because it was maybe close to 20 years ago. Maybe, maybe, um, maybe like 18 years ago, something like that. And <laughs> I was excited and nervous. Um, and, you and I and Johnny V played at Le Bon Tom. Do you remember this? Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. Yes. In New Orleans. Yes, and it was during Jazz Fest. And I remember I was like, I don't know if I got to like learn these songs or what do I got to do? I, I, there wasn't much communication at that point. And uh, I showed up and I was like, okay, so so what are we doing? And you guys pretty much just laughed. <laughs> You know, both <laughs> you and Johnny were like, "All right, let's see, let's see what this kid can uh, if this kid can hang," you know. And we just played, <laughs> you know, for like three hours too. And you, we were not yeah. even done after like two hours. And you know, in a lot of cases for me, I hadn't really done much of that. I mean, sure, my lettuce guys and soul live guys will get together and just jam, but not with brand new people. With no plan, you know, we just went in and I just tried to follow you wherever you could go. And the the amount of we've done that quite a few times now. And I've learned so much as as far as like trying to stay on my toes and uh, be able to follow you. But at the same time, it didn't feel like a long noodly jam. You know what I mean? It also had you would play a song and then Johnny would would sing something and it would it beca- it was a show you know it was an entertaining show and i know that you uh do that a lot you know with your different jam especially with johnny but um when it, like have you always had that thing where you were able to kind of improvise and and the the like were you ever like nervous about that style of performing now nah, i guess like probably for the last you know probably 30 plus years I have I have not been worried about that kind of stuff because I you know I kind of became open to um you know to to 
to being a part of what I'm around. Right. So uh, you know, I've uh, so I've, I've I've adapted to just being a part of whatever the scene is, you know. Yeah. And 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 and, and, and playing off of each other, um, doing the thing. I think the thing with Johnny Vodakovich probably is the is the beginning of that consciousness for yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah. Because because uh, the first time I, I came and did played that set with him. Um, it, it was um, the funky butt, and, and was it the funky butt? I believe that's what it was called, a funky butt. Yeah, I remember down, that place. Downtown, yeah. and um, and you know, his wife called me up and said that um, you know, uh, can you come play a gig with Johnny tonight? It's a, a trio gig. I said, oh sure, you know, I'm you know, I'm I'm, I'm open for that, you know, and and um, and went down to play the gig, and it was a saxophonist named Eric Traub. Yeah, and um, and um, and just, just the three of us, and so I asked the same question. So, what we gonna do? Uh, you know, when we what we gonna do it? And, and Johnny was playing, and I'm saying so. I'm looking, and, and uh, Eric looked at me and said, "The gig just started." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, That's funny. I said, "Oh yeah, so, no time for questions." Eric starts playing some stuff. Yeah, so Eric started playing stuff, and so then I just kind of started kind of playing some kind of little chord kind of formats, and yeah. and once Johnny did it, went into a pocket. You know, then then I played a bass line to match that pocket. You know, and right. Then from there, you know how you say school was open. Right, know? right, right. You know, you know, you know, Snooks used to always tell me, "Say Porter, listen up. If you listen, you gotta learn something." Yeah, you know. So, um, so that's what I was doing. Was Snooks a major influence on you as far as like deepening your vocabulary of songs and music and styles and stuff? Absolutely, uh, Snooks. I, I learned most songs. Yeah. More R and B, more R and B for, for definitely songs. I played songs with Snooks that I would never play with anyone else. Right, and because and then he Snooks used to reach back into the into the forties and and early fifties and stuff and play songs that you know that I might have heard when I was a little boy, you know, yeah. and, and, and but never ever played, you know, and um, so it was like yeah. He was probably a, 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 a wonderful influence as far as you developing my ears to you know to to um, intervals. You right. Know. Right. I, I, I you know I learned with one and four and five and threes and sevens and stuff. It sounded like because he wouldn't tell you. <laughs> he right. would just play them. You know. Going further back than that, you know, I know your mom sang in church. Did, did you? Did your music? Uh, education start in church and with your family and no my like mom my mom was just in the Catholic choir the director of the choir he was the one that got my mom the choir he got me uh, my, he told my mom that I should put she should put her sons in music right right you know to, to keep them off of the rough streets of New Orleans you know yeah. so my, you know that's where the idea of me and my brother my mom getting me and my brother violins which uh, almost got her killed because wow. <laughs> my dad came my dad came home from work one one evening and uh me and my brother was both in the back of the house <laughs> and, and boy, my my pop blew a blew a, a blew a gasket, bro. He said, "You get that stuff." <laughs> you know, he used a couple of really wonderful royal words. You know, yeah, and, yeah. you know, and so the violins went away the next morning, 
And um, and it may it may have been two years or so before my grandmother actually gave me a guitar for uh um for Christmas for Christmas present. And but my mom actually, you know, got the charge and, and, and got the got the black eye, you know, because of the of the guitar because my dad thought that she spent his money, you know, buying me a, a, an instrument which right. he was not he was not a big fan of, you know, right. of, of instruments. Period. He loved music. He right. loved you know, but he was more into saxophones, and you know, and and, and um. So if she would have bought me a saxophone, he might have might have been okay with it. But I, she bought a guitar. What the hell? Who makes money playing guitars? <laughs> right, right. So um, you know, so she got into a lot of trouble for that for that guitar thing. But the idea that I have this guitar now, um, I have to take lessons. Because yeah. it was like that was the rule. Yeah. If I didn't take the lessons for the guitar, because it was like a lease thing, you know, it wasn't oh, like right, actually right. I owned it. I had to take lessons from Worldland Music, and um, the guy was named Hamilton Brown, but he didn't teach me at Worldlands. He was doing me. At, he, I'll take my lessons at his house on Saturdays. Gotcha. So that was the that was the how that went down, you know. But I had you know he he got me a, 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 a um, it was a classical guitar. Uh, um, and and they had those cat hair strings on them, gut hair strings, and so um, you know, so he, uh, I guess his idea of the instrument that I had, the lessons that the, that he had me learning was uh, uh, was you know learning the classical formula, playing with you know the, with the ten fingers, and and um, but he had me playing cowboy songs, you know, home home on the range and Red River Valley and those kind of songs. And I, I was, I mean, I, I was doing that because I wanted, to, I wanted, to, I wanted the guitar, and and I wanted to, you know, um, play my part in the deal that I made with my mom. So you know, I took the lessons. I learned to read, you know, and I learned to, um, you know, and I learned, I learned to write, you know. So I was like, I was all in, you know, and uh, until I heard Papi and his grandfather playing, uh, playing blueses. Yeah. With that Sam, with that Sam formula, yeah. and I was like, "Oh, that's the songs I want to play." Right, know? right, and that so. seems to flip it completely. Because I know for me, I had a similar experience where I had a violin and you know classes with music, reading music and stuff. But it wasn't till I found my music, you know, which at my point it was like you know Jimi Hendrix and stuff like that. And then it was like, okay, then I was off. You know, then yeah. I was like, like off and running when I found the thing. Do you remember? So, so, so was it? It was Poppy. Or was there other records, other artists at that time that really got you going and, and inspired you to play? Well, I, I guess it was um, what I, what became later, which was probably like because we moved off of Padilla Street uptown. Yeah, because uh, my my parents separated and. And when we moved, uh, um, I you know I met um, I met I moved into uh, actually they called it Nevilleville, right. and so it was it was around the corner from Art Neville and Zigaboo, my Zigby, my little cousin who I hadn't seen in about ten years. Yeah, um, I, I was living on one corner, and uh, and Art and um, and Aaron and all of them was living in Art was in the same block with Zig. Right, uh, um, and Aaron and Cyril and all that was in the and uh, 
Sarah was in the same block with Zig. Art was around on the night on the next corner, right. and Aaron was in the next block. So you know, and this is actually Crazy. before Art bought the house that was like you know that eventually was the house that Zigaboo lived in. Art Art bought that house after right. Katrina, but um, you know, so I, I got when I got up there, I started hearing more of the you know the uh, of the New Orleans. For some reason, back then, New Orleans used to play. A lot more of the local R and B stuff on almost all the radio stations. Right, right. The TIXs, the NOEs, and the um, WBOKs and the WYLD started started playing. It probably wasn't until the early '60s or something when uh, the radio stations kind of started playing. You know what would be considered the popular music. You know, right, right. And 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 the, and the record labels start playing off radio stations to play our songs, you know, play or hey, I got this new guy I want y'all to play, you know, and, and pay the guy up under the table, you know, and, and so all of a sudden every time one of those guys artists came along, uh, one of the new artists guys disappeared. Right, right, <laughs> took the spot. Yeah, That's so interesting. Um, so that that was pretty much. So I mean, I think I I learned. I got to learn a lot of a lot of things. But when, um, when by the time I was fifteen, I would think, um, I I knew about Earl King. I knew about. Uh, uh, I didn't know much about Snooks. I had heard of him, but didn't know much about him. Um, but knew about Earl King, Benny Spellman's Ernie Cato, and Alan Toussaint, yeah. Fast Domino, Professor Longhair, yeah. all those guys. And I knew about Ray Charles and uh, Curtis Mayfield, you know, uh, over basically the impressions at that time. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, uh, and, and that was kind of the influence of music that, that was a part of me, but it was still, you know, 80% New Orleans. You know? Right. And at some point, I read this, and this this could, I don't know, you could tell me whether this is true or not, that you sat in with Earl King or you were playing with Earl King and that's where you met Art. Is that true? In Art, or or did you know Art before that? I was in the Art's neighborhood, but right. didn't really know him. Gotcha. I, I, gotcha. I was living around him. It was years later that uh, um, that I got to meet Art. I got to meet Art through a gig with Herb, Herbert Wing. Okay, Herbert Wing was a guitarist. Uh, um, that that Papi played in Herbert's band, and I, I when my, my my mom moved for the second time after after her, my my dad separated, we moved to a, a address up on on Camberone Street, and um, when we moved uptown, we was around the corner from. I've always seemed to be around the corner from a guitar player. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, I, I met I met Herbert Wing. And come to find out that Papi was his bass player. Yeah, you know, I said, well, I, I said I knew I knew Papi from from you know when when I was a, when I was a kid because I hadn't seen him in a while, you know. Yeah, and uh, and and so um, so I got to start hanging with them, and, and I sort of like became a roadie for their band that right. used to play all these fraternity houses. Yeah, and, uh, and 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 on these fraternity gigs, I got to meet Earl King, you know, Benny Spellman, uh, Tommy Ridgely, yeah, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, Ernie Cato, um, you know, Jesse Hill, uh, um, no Snooks yet, still no Snooks, yeah, uh, um, but you know, we they were because the, they were hire Herbert's band as the house band, gotcha. And then they would hire all these different artists to be a part of the gig. So those guys, the guys would come to um, to Broadway, 
and play all those frat houses. And they might play four frat houses a night. Each one of them, go, they'll be floating around. And the house band, you know, would be the band that plays their songs, you know, right. when they come to play, you know. So that's how I got to meet Earl and all and I, the, the New Orleans royalty. Yeah. Now, Fats Domino, I didn't get to meet him until much later. And, uh, um, and it was through Herbert Wings to some degree. Gotcha. Um, Art called Herbert needing a guitar player. And and uh, um, so Art, um, so Herbert said, well, I got a gig tonight, but I got this kid. He's a wonderful player. He can play. He knows all, he'll know all your songs. No problem. You know, I'll send him. Uh, uh, you uh, you have to go pick him up. You actually, actually have to go and ask his mom. Can, can he come play the game? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so Art Neville had to come to my house and ask my mom, come and play. Well, naturally, Art Neville, my mom knew Art Neville's name. You know, yeah. she knew who it was. So it was no big deal just let me go play this gig with Art Neville. Yeah, yeah. And um, so um, I played the gig. I went to go play the gig with Art. And I'm a rhythm guitar player. Always yeah. have been. Yeah. Uh, um, or play a song and he'll look at me to take a solo. I say, "Oh no, no solo." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> me no solo, man. Yeah, yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't take no solos. So at the end of the night, right, he tells me on his way taking me home. He said, "Man, you're the worst guitar player I ever." Oh, oh, no. <laughs> he said, I, I ain't ever gonna call you again. <laughs> you know. Wow. And he dropped me off, and I think he was kind of pissed off with me. Right. <laughs> you know. So it was like a couple of years later that I was playing with uh, Irvin Bannister when Art came in yeah. and heard me playing bass guitar. So when did the flip happen to bass? Like what? Well, you know, I mean, the flip happened all between all that time. You right, I've been right. playing bass all all that period. You know, right, right. because you know, as, as you recall, playing classical, you was playing bass lines as well. You right, know? So right. You, you, you knew you knew how to, you knew the, the conscious thought thinking behind being a bass line. Yeah, and uh, so uh, yeah, I, so I have I have probably I think I would say I was playing bass ever since I was eight. Right, right. <laughs> uh, um, so um, that so, but Irvin Irvin. Uh, um, Irvin Bannister was probably the, the well, it wasn't, it was Irma Thomas who I actually played bass with the first time I played bass wow. on a, on a gig. Uh, um, and Frank Moulton with Walter Washington and those guys. Wow. And at that point, maybe for that year, year, maybe not even a whole year, about maybe six or eight months of, of playing with those guys at a club called 808. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Irvin Bannister saw me. And said, "Hey man, you want to play a play play a gig with my band?" And you know, and Irvin Bannister was the guitar player, famous in New Orleans for being the guitar player on Danny White's "Kiss Tomorrow Goodbye." Right. And uh, it was actually it was an Earl King song that um, Danny that Earl wrote for Danny White. So um, that was Irvin's claim to fame, and that was you know Irvin's solo band got work and people came out to see him play that guitar <laughs> guitar yeah. solo. Yeah, yeah. We were playing across the street called a club called the Cindy Club. Yeah. And it was on the corner from a club called Charlie's Corner, which was that was a key club, you know, for for all uh, all you know, pretty much the the who's who of the of the music and echelon community back yeah. then, you know. Yeah. They didn't have a key. The guy used to slide a little door, a little door, a little window open, and the yeah, door, yeah. and let you let y'all in. You know, uh, Fats Domino was a frequent visitor there, right. and and uh, and we would be playing across the street, 
And when Fats get, you know, get really get a good road going, Fats would want to come across the street by us, usually about a half hour before we about to get off. Fats would come across the street and want to play piano. Well, naturally, nobody going to tell Fats Domino, no, you can't play, right. you know. So so the, the piano player would get up and Fats would sit down and, and um, and he would play for an hour. Right, <laughs> right. So we we would always be there. We would always no, never never fail that uh, you know when fans come in, everybody knew we'd going home late tonight. You know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so this one night, fans came over. Art Neville followed them over across the street, and Art saw me playing bass. You know, and, and so after that, after the gig, Art came up to me and said, "Man, that's the instrument you need to be playing. Yeah, you yeah. know, you need to not ever play guitar again." You know, <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and he said, and then he asked me, "Do I want a gig?" And I said, "You know, at that point, you know, he said, well, from Urban Bannister to Art Neville, Urban Bannister to Art Neville." You know, it was like, okay, well, this is a no-brainer. Art Neville was a step up. Yeah. You know. In 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 the um in in the echelon, you know. So and I said, sure. Was art and art had records out at that point? It, was he was he on on the come up in New Orleans as far as like he and was and also was he performing as Art Neville or was it the Neville Sounds at that point? I know no, no, that Neville Sounds and uh, uh, Art Art was. In New Orleans, Art Neville performed as Art Neville. Right, right, okay. Whenever, and it wasn't a whole lot. Like I said, when I first met Art, yeah. when I first played with him, he was just an artist. He was like the Earl Kings and those guys. Got it. They would go and play with the house band. He never had a band of his own. Gotcha. Uh, he uh, he played in a band called, uh, uh, the, what was it, the Chapaca Chavis, I believe it was. Uh, um, no, well, that was one of the bands he played in. I can't remember the band that that that, that recorded the song, all these things. But Art sang it, but it was on. It was the you know it was um, the band was like the the name of the record. You know, right. it, was the, it was the band. It wasn't Art Neville. Uh, um, but the world knew that it was Art Neville singing that song. You know. So Art had been out there. He was a he was a known you know Art and Aaron Neville was a known fact. Art had been out on tour with Aaron with Aaron doing Tell It Like It Is when he came home and decided he wanted his own band at this point. Yeah. And um he had done, he had had this club called the Nightcap. He had went in there and and and, and um and pretty much discussed it with the the owners and said, man, you know, I'm Art Neville. I'm putting together a band, and I want to. I want to play your club, you know. And again, like you don't tell Art never no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, know? you, you give him a you give him a shot, even though he had a band. He had a, he had, was putting together a band. He hadn't he didn't have a band. He was putting together a band. Yeah. And basically, he took and the band that was playing the nightcap at the time was a guy named Sam Henry. Um, Gary Brown was on saxophone. Leo Nocentelli was on guitar. I don't remember who the drummer was, and and um, and the bass player that was on the gig um, was originally Art was going to keep keep that bass player. Basically, Art was going in and snatching Sam's gig. Right. Sam had to leave his organ there. Art <laughs> played Sam's oh, organ. Man. Took the guitar player, the saxophone player. It was going to take the bass player, but but. Um, the, the reason why he came to me is because the bass player got, uh, um, you know, got drafted. Well, to keep from getting drafted, he joined the Marine Corps, and um, so that's that's how I got the gig, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so, 
I don't remember who the, who the original drummer was with Sam's band at that time, but um, but we had a guy, the guy that played with us, and I can't remember his name either. Um, he um, had to have a, a, a minor surgery, uh, um, and when he went off to do a surgery, Art called Zigaboo Zig at the time was playing with um, Deacon John's band, and um, he called Zig to come in to play. And it was like two weeks. He was out two weeks. Right. When he came back, he came back on one of those, one Sunday night. You know, just came back and, and was standing in the doorway talking to the owner. And he heard Zig playing with playing with the band. And he turned to the owner and said, "I don't think I'm getting this gig back." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's an understatement. <laughs> and so he came Monday morning and took his drums and disappeared. Wow. And his name was Glenn. His okay. name was Glenn. I okay. can't remember what his last name was. Yeah. But he took his drums that Monday, and and um, and, and the, um, the Doucet brother, one of the, the older brother, called um, called Art up and said, "Hey man, I think you need to find your, uh, your drummer a set of drums because the guy came and took his drums." <laughs> Please stick around. We'll be right back after this short break. And so at that point, it was you, Zig, Art, Leo, Leo and then a, the and Gary Brown. And Gary Brown. Yeah. And this is around 64, 65? Yes, yes. Because yeah. I think late 64, early 65. And it probably ran through 60 all the way to like the middle of 66 that we were playing uh, at the nightcap. And when did it actually become the meters? Uh, it didn't become the meters until we moved into the um, French quarters. Right. The the um, the band something happened with the ownership of the club, and uh, um, and so we were off for like maybe two three weeks, and then Art called back and said, "Hey man, we got us a gig. It's on Bourbon Street." But at that point, Zig was not old enough, and he had to get. We had to get papers for Zig. Well, Zig wasn't old enough to play in the nightcap, but the nightcap never cared. Right. Uh, um, but Bourbon Street, he needed to have a work permit. Uh, so okay. I remember Zig had to get a work permit to play Bourbon Street. By that time, Alan Toussaint had been peeping on us for a while. Yeah. Um, but while we was at the nightcap, the Neville Sound band name came about because of a disc jockey named George Vanette. George Vanette, one night he got all juiced up, you know, for a little powder, yeah. and decided, you know, um, you know, he wanted to MC the gig that night, yeah. you know, or the second set or the third set, maybe it might have been the third set. And he came up on a run up on stage and and he said, "Ah, ladies and gentlemen, blah 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 blah, and we gonna bring y'all live right out um, the the Never Sound Band, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and." Um, at that point, there was only one Neville in the band. It was Art, <laughs> you know, and uh, and so you know, Art kind of liked that idea, the Neville Sound Band. And so that's we lived. We took that to Bourbon Street with us, right? Right. Uh, um, the Neville Sound Band. A few months into that Bourbon Street gig, the Ivanhoe, that's when Alan Toussaint, Art got a call from Alan's partner Marshall Sehorn that Alan wanted to wanted us to come audition 
at the studio, just it was just the audition, right? The bear house band. Um, Garrett Brown was no longer in the band by then because he he lost he lost the gig kind of yeah. kind of quickly. Uh, um, so now it's just the four. It's the four of us, yes. And we moved we moved to uh, we do in to do the uh, the Lee Dorsey. It was Lee Dorsey tracks that that that, that eventually it became Lee Dorsey tracks. Right, and we um we did the we did the stuff, and you know, and naturally we we nailed what, it, what he wanted us to do. You know, we was nailing it. And was was Alan known at that point around town? Was he had he had uh, some hits under his belt? He was the man, right? Alan Toussaint was was now the the guy. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, um, as far as the, um being at the top of the ladder. You know? Right, right, it was, right. It was Alan Toussaint, Dave Bartholomew, you know, uh, uh, Eddie Bowe, as, the, you know, the black producers in New Orleans. You right, know? right. Um, and did you guys take to the studio well? Because, I mean, there's a, it's a big difference playing on Bourbon Street in the club to making records in the studio with a producer like Alan. Was that, was that fairly seamless for you, or was it like a whole different experience? It was a different experience because, A, it, it taught, it, it, we learned, we had to learn repetitiveness. Yeah. You know, uh, 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 we were being handed parts to play. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and Alan didn't want us to veer away from any of those parts, you know, so... He wanted that stuff to be boom, bum, nail. Yeah. Except for playing on Bourbon Street, you just played, you know, how you felt, you know? Right. you know. I mean, you learned a song, but then you played it, and if you wanted to change a part or something, you can change it. But, you know, but nobody was going to, you know, jump you about, no, you can't do that, you know? I mean, art was kind of anal about not changing stuff too bad. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And was Alan handing you charts that were very specific? Was he writing bass lines out, or, or was he giving you a general guideline as far as what to play? The first time I bumped heads with Alan was about that exactly thing. Yeah, was that uh, um, you know he had a part that he wanted me to play, and and it was uh, he was like two parts to the song, and I was having trouble getting back to the first part after going to the second part. Yeah, you know. So I told him, I said, bro, what, can you just write this out so I can read it, you know? And uh, so I'll know when these parts come up and stuff, you know? And he said, uh, he said, well, uh, he said, well, if I wanted the music read, I would have kept the bass player that I had. I had the best reading bass player in the city, Walter Payton, playing before me. Right. Yeah, and uh, so uh, uh, he said, you know, it was about, it was about my feeling. Right. The parts. Right, and uh, 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 and that's what he wanted. He just wanted me to to remember the parts and feel it and play it, you know. Yeah, and, and this is before we were doing overdubs, so the shit had to go down, you know. So yeah, was it was it just it was just a few microphones really in a room? As far as were that were the vocalists singing with you generally? Was it all a live take that was being recorded? Yeah, we wasn't originally told that there was going to be singers, right? You know, but those lead those lead Aussie tracks that we did, uh, um, I think when we did the Betty Harris sessions, I think Betty Harris might have came in, and I think she re- might have rehearsed the song with us. Yeah. But then when we cut it, she wasn't in it. You know that, and 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 so, and I'm not sure how they did it because it wasn't like a multi-tracking thing. Yeah. I mean, I remember the first couple of lead Aussie things were burnt to this. Yeah. And then then we went to tape. Yeah. And it was just a two-inch, you know, just a a, 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 a one-inch tape. Yeah. 
and and um then what they would do is he Kaz would just mix that stuff and they would go down to the tape perfect. Yeah. Then then they would bring Lee Dorsey in and they'd run that tape and they'd run Lee Dorsey's voice against yeah. that tape Onto and record tape. it on a different another yeah, machine. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And that's 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 the way that was done. Yeah. So you guys, so the was that the first record you guys really did as the Meters was was the Lee Dorsey record. Well, we weren't the Meters yet. Right. It it was it wasn't until after we had done the second I think the second recording session with Lee. The first session was done at it was just, it, at that time it was known as Cosmos Studio. Uh, and then, then when we did the second session, which was like maybe a month, two months later, um, the cars um, had sold the studio to the engineer Skip Godwin because he, him, and his wife was having a divorce or something. Right. And he, um, you know, basically to keep from losing the studio, he sold it, basically uh, for for a dollar or some stuff like I heard it was like yeah. a dollar he sold the studio for a dollar <laughs> that's crazy <laughs> and uh but he still owned the studio but Skip Goblin's name was on the studio you know yeah and um and then it might have been Alan Toussaint who paid for the paid that dollar <laughs> right <laughs> it was after the second session that um that Marshall Seahorn after Alan we had been in there for about six seven hours and uh Alan Marshall Seahorn came in and told us that um Say, why don't you guys cut some tracks? You know, why don't y'all cut a couple of y'all got some music y'all want to play? Just play something, you know, just play something. And um, so that's what we did, you know, and that's where um, sophisticated sissy, sissy strut, here come the meter man and see Horns form was born. Right. Uh, was the tracks meter one, meter two, meter three, meter. Well, um, no, it wasn't it. It was just. It wasn't even metered, so I don't know what they what they called. It was just track one, two, and three, four. Wow! And so though though all four of those tracks happened on the first session. On the first, and session, and that was yeah. in one day. And one, yeah, and wow, and one one maybe two and a half hour period. Weren't you guys called the Meter Men first, or is that? No, the no. Meter Men came years 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 later. years yeah. later. Okay, at that point, you know, those were obviously all instrumentals, and uh, right, right. Sissy Strut, you know, became maybe the biggest instrumental record that I know of, definitely as far as New Orleans history. Did that come out pretty soon after those sessions? Uh, Sissy Strut was actually the second the, the second release. The first right. release was Sophisticated Sissy. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, Sophisticated Sissy went out, and uh, um, and at the time there was a there was a apparently there was a a, a, a movement. A a, 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 a a sissy movement type movement, you know, that was going on in the country. I don't know how many other songs had the sissy stuff in it, but um, but it was uh, um, Marshall Seahorn titled those. It wasn't none of we did, we didn't give those songs names. Ah, Marshall Seahorn did it, and, and um, I, I want to say I think because one of the people that was close to Marshall and Allen at the time. Was a uh, was a producer. Um, uh, God, what's his name? I just had it on my head. Um, God, I can't forget. But I think he was actually the one that told Marshall, "Say we should use this craving, that's this this rage that's going on right now with the thing, with the sissy into sissy because um, um, and just call this song sophisticated sissy." What does that even you mean? Know? What did that mean at the time? Sophisticated sissy. I think 
Well, I, I, I want to, I, man, I don't know. It might piss off some people, but I think it has something to do with the gay community. Right, right. That's and, what I and, and, thought, and, and, but I wasn't, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, 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 and, you know, and a sophisticated sissy was, you know, was a, you know, a uppity, a uppity yeah. sissy, you know. Right, right. Uh, one who carried herself on a, on a, a higher level than, you yeah. know, than just a, just a street uh, um, a person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, and th- th- that song climbed the climbed the R and B charts like crazy. It was right. it was nuts. Like start up to stop. Crazy. You know, um, it ta- it took took uh, um, Booker T and the MGs out of the out of the out of the thing. It overcame Booker T and the MGs and stuff. Yeah. So um, Marshall immediately released the second track, Sissy Strut, and uh, 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 and and Sissy Strut. Passed sophisticated sissy up on the charts and went into the pop charts and went you know went a high up in the pop in the pop charts you know it was like wow you know Did you so have- at that point Marshall Marshall and all this happened within a month right. you know something like that um, Marshall called us out called us called us one day brought us down to the office you know and we all standing in the office and he um, he he got these checks in his hands you know he got these checks in his hand and and. A document about that thick. One uh, uh, us to sign this. He said, "Well, I can give y'all this check, but y'all got to sign this document." You know, right? And uh, it was a check was for twenty thousand dollars. Wow! And 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 the, and the document was our, a contract. You yeah. know, yeah. Uh, basically, a, 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 so it might have been a, a lifetime agreement. You know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it had no expiration date on it. You know, right? But uh, right. you know. And for me, as as a young as a young man, I you know, a young man with a baby at home, yeah, uh, I ain't never seen twenty thousand dollars on a, on a piece of paper before, you yeah, know, yeah. Uh, so it was a no brainer for me, and I think I don't think anybody you know uh, um, griped about the contract, you know. I think mean, everybody signed that document, took those twenty thousand dollar check. I went straight to the bank. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's a crazy uh, story. And uh, then all of a sudden, were you guys playing in front of a lot of people? Um, how did that translating into into touring and stuff? Did you guys hit the road after that? We it, it was a, probably another five six months before um uh, for the uh, while this, while while Sissy Strut was climbing and beating up the charts, you know, um you know Marshall brought us back in the studio. Yeah, we we uh, we finished recording, uh, you know, and and um. And the, the rest, the first album was, you know, all that all that music on that first record was wrote in the studio. Was yeah. was was brand brand waved in the studio and, over a course of maybe one two days. And what was that process like? Was were you guys all bringing ideas in and then kind of working them out with the band, or was and was it um, kind of like? How did you guys introduce the ideas to each other? It wasn't written, right? No, there was no no papers. No, not, not, nothing was written. No paperwork. It was just a pocket, mostly between Zig and Leo. Yeah. You know, Zig might create a pocket, a groove. Yeah. You know, and Leo would write a lick. And a lot of that first, a lot of that first record, you know, um, you know, was myself and Leo was playing the same lick. You know. Yeah, yeah. We were playing, we were playing the same licks, and. Um, Pretty much, that's pretty much how that how how that stuff went. You know, pretty much nobody told RT what to play. Right. RT would just play. You know, and that was like you know, you know, whatever you whatever y'all do, y'all do that. 
leave me alone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm a, I'm when then you guys started introducing more vocal tunes, was that was that a conscious effort to to bring it, or or at that point? It was music is music, you know. What was that? What was that? Were you guys like, okay, Art needs to sing a song, Zig needs to sing a song? Well, yeah, and that was like three albums later, you right, know. That right. was like, you know, the, the, at the, at the time, well, you know, at what was going on was between the first record and the third record, which was would have been Dumb Eaters, Look a Pie Pie, yep. and Chicken Strut. Um, you know, I think Art might have sang one song on the first record, maybe two on the second record, and, and, and we had some group vocals on the third record. The, when we cut, when we left um, Josie Records, well, Josie read Belly Up, and uh, we uh, we was we were without a label for a short period of time, or I think left the band for a short period of time, and, um, and Marshall came back to us and uh, um, said that, um, we were moving to um, to a, a Warner Records label, so a right. reprise. Um, well, the first record was done, the Cabbage Alley record, I believe, was done on, under the Warner Brothers banner. Yeah. Um, and at that point, um, we realized that, you know, man, there's more work for us out there as a vocal group. Yeah. Thinking-wise. Right. Now I say we. I it's, I really had very little say in in that in that in that decision making. Uh, I was more about playing those instrumental stuff. I, I like the I like that those 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 instrumental jams. I was more open for some more of that kind of stuff. Right. But but we had Art Neville in the band, man. I mean, this guy could sing, bro. You know, I mean, yeah. why not? Why, why aren't we using this voice? You know. Right. Marshall was not a big fan of that idea because he, he, you know, one of the things he didn't want was us to get so big as that, you know, uh, uh, um, that he had to start paying us more money than he was paying us to do these Alan Two Cent sessions, right? You know, uh, um, which you know sort of kind of came to a head eventually. By the time we cut Rejuvenation, uh, you know, uh, our relationship with Alan as a as his rhythm section has started deteriorating really bad. Yeah. And I think it, it all went up with the lady, the, the lady marmalade session, the LaBelle session, when Zig and Alan just kind of had a meltdown, you know. Right, and was that due to lack of residuals and and royalties and? It had it had more to do with the lack of um of uh, being paid, uh, you know, being paid to do those sessions, you right, know. Right, right. What how we were getting paid, you know, and uh, uh and it was um and you know. I mean, and also it was Capricorn on Capricorn. It was three Capricorns in the studio yeah. at, all, at all times. <laughs> yeah. Alan Toussaint, myself, and Zig. Yeah, you know. yeah. All, all band leader. You know, all you get a bunch of band leaders in the room. <laughs> right, right. But for context, you know, Lady Marmalade, obviously massive hit. Right place, wrong time, was a big hit. You guys were, you know, part of this machine. I know sneaking Sally through the alley. That was was that a bit later. No, uh, no, that, that was, that was pretty much around that same time, yeah, yeah. Because Zig, Zig is on. I mean, I think LaBelle's project came after uh, um, Sneaker Salad because that's Zig on Sneaker Salad through the alley. Okay, right, right, right. That Robert Palmer session was before LaBelle, and so these were big records, national records. Um, and meanwhile, you guys are also, you know, touring um, as a band. Were uh, were you guys like? 
seeing good money from making these records? Or- Ab- absolutely not. And that was the, and that was the problem. Yes. That, you know, by the time you know when we did two Dr. John records. Yeah. You know. All within less than a year. Big record. The Desertively Bound Rule would have been a huge record for Mac. Yeah. But, um, um, but Mac and the record label was not meeting head to head. Right. And so Mac said, you know, he just walked away from the session. He, I mean, not walked away from the session, but he walked away from the label. Right. So the label just kind of, you know, like just dropped the, dropped that song, that record. Yeah. He didn't let it happen. You know. Yeah. Um, so the record never really got the kind of you know it got underground play you know right. but it, it never got the the push that it would have it was a better record than the right place wrong time yeah they yeah had much better songs on it and everything yeah but, you know and but Mac the best payday Mac got from doing Desertively Bonnaroo was on the on the anniversary of the uh, Bonnaroo Music Festival I was there I watched that I watched you guys yeah. play it was the original meters with Dr. John. I remember we were playing on another stage and we got done like right as that was starting and we like got some guy in a cart to cruise. Oh, we can't miss this shit. <laughs> but that was great, man. That was such so cool. Yeah. That, well, that I, I, I think that, that was the best, that was the best payday. Right. Mac Meters, ever saw. Dr. John. Yeah. Meters also, right. you know, that, that we have, cause right. when we did that record, we would, you know, I mean, it was like, I was. I mean, I've sometimes questioned that if I ever got paid to do At that all. session. Wow. <laughs> you know, because we never knew how. You know, we never knew what we were getting paid for. You know, we were right. getting little checks here and little checks there. Right. And um, and Marshall Marshall controlled the flow of the money, so we never knew what the hell we were getting paid for. Right. And Marshall owned the masters. No, no. Uh, uh the uh, Doctor John stuff. No, um, I think the Amigan, the Amigan brothers. Right, right, yeah, right. Because that was Atl- Atlantic Records, I believe. And what about the Meters Records? Marshall C. Horn and Alan C. Saints recording studio. Right, right. C. Saints. Because yeah. you know, and and this is an interesting thing that I that I wanted to talk about because there was no way for anyone to foresee what would happen, but I have to like note the fact that those records were sampled by N.W.A., Public Enemy, Tupac, Tribe Called Quest, Diggable Planets, Jay Dilla, Big Daddy Kane, Cypress Hill, Timberland, Pete Rock. I mean, <laughs> these are the biggest hip-hop names in the world. And I, I looked this up today, and I, yeah. I and it's unbelievable because it's now it's all on the internet that you can see. But um, when I was coming up, I knew these hip hop artists, right? And then when right. I really dug into the meters, I started realizing how much of that I had heard on these other records. And um, just to fast forward for a second, like when you guys started hearing the that, and that became this phenomena. Like, what were you thinking? Were you were you? mad at these artists for using your shit were you kind of like honored by it like what were you feeling I, it, for me it was a double edged blade yeah. uh, I I, I kind of like was and I got more upset when I realized that Marshall Sehan was making deals right. that you know that we didn't know about so some of the, some of those songs had had gotten licensed yeah or, or not like actually licensed but like buyouts you know right. got a payoff yeah 
and and uh, and and the money was under the table. Marshall got the money and couldn't because I never listened to hip hop. Yeah, you know, I never listened to any of that stuff, so I never heard the so stuff. So you didn't even know. I didn't even know about it. Yeah, a friend of mine named Tracy Freeman was working at a record store down here named Peaches Record. Oh yeah, I know Peaches. Yeah, he was like, you know, he sold, he sold, he he was a cashier. You know, yeah. he paid, you know, and it, <laughs> he was like, guess what? <laughs> he was saying, man. Do you know about this? And yeah. he, I said, no, about what? He said, man, they got they got a bunch of hip hop songs that's got y'all music in it. Yeah, you know. So he made me a, he made me a a, a a a a a tape a cassette tape of it must have been about twenty five songs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, one of them actually Cordova, the song Cordova. Yeah. Must have must have got gotten sampled about forty times. Yes, yeah. I mean it they, is. they the use that baseline in the bottom. Oh, I looked at that list. Did lit it, lit it, did I mean rap That's or, rappers everywhere. Everybody raps on that. <laughs> Not talking about an info. So beep it out, here goes the info. This is a bitch that did the whole crew. She did it so much we made bets. So knew the whole would love to go through. That that's like yeah. a classic. That's a classic. <laughs> and, and clap your hands. Clap yes, your hands. Yes. I mean, if you listen to Hot 97 in, in the 90s, that was the track that people would come in and, and freestyle over and battle rap over. Yeah. You know, the fact that all these songs were going out the back of the trunk of somebody's cars, they were making yeah. money. Not even necessarily the record labels were making money, but the um, artists was making money. Right. But the songwriters, the guys who wrote the tracks, the music that they were playing, didn't wasn't making a nickel on any right, of this stuff. Right. You know, and wasn't even getting uh, acknowledgement. You know, right. It wasn't it was, getting yeah. said that. Yeah. Hey, you know, hey, bro, if y'all if y'all have heard this song, y'all should hear this one. Right. You know, all the girl, all the girls love me. You know, like heavy heavy D man. Yeah, yeah. It was like, man. I was thinking. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. By this time, I'm listening to it. You know, I'm listening it, yeah. to some, some, some hip hop. And I, I'm listening to the big thing. Uh, how hip all the girls love me is making noise all over, and 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 I'm saying to myself, I say, and that's one of the songs that was licensed, but never was told to us. You know, right. it, it was licensed through through Marshall Sion, but never, you know, he he didn't even license it through Harry Fox Agency. Cause yeah. if we went through Harry Fox Agency, we would have got paid. You know, right. has any of that been corrected in any way? Like, if um, to some degree, but you know, the most part of it is that. Uh, um, that you know, the, it was a, a thing that uh, that was I heard that this is, this is hearsay. I'm not sure if it's true or not, but like all of those songs came out 
well, incorporated solo songs. Interesting. And 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 they and whatever money they made, they got expended. You know, they, they yeah. spent every nickel. Yeah. So it showed no profit. Oh man. You know, uh, 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 Queen, Queen Queen Latifah got us. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know, and we we went after Queen Latifah, and yeah. Queen Latifah said, "Hey, sue me." <laughs> right, right. And she said, "Hey, bro, just sue me." I mean, you yeah. know, I don't, I don't have, a, I don't care. Right. You know, sue me. You know, and, and that was when we found out that the 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 record the record was the record had zero income. Right. Because, so how how does a record get zero income? Because you you borrow a hundred thousand dollars on it. Right. Right. <laughs> That's the thing is that they put all these expenses on it, you know, from the label and all that. There's one song in particular that came out, I think, around two thousand, by an artist named A. Marie, and the song who was her biggest song. And at that time, I'm a big Meters fan, and it takes the break in the end of El Calcutta. And it goes bam, boom, doom, goom, doom, boom, doom, bam, boom, doom, 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 bam. song is a loop of something you guys played just once and that was then that was the biggest song on the radio for months and i would get it got me mad because <laughs> like, i'm a huge meters fan i'm like this is the meters right there what is he talking about that's what are you guys talking about uh, but uh i just i just remember going back and and uh and finding where all those came from and i'm curious also and do you see this at all that some people found their way to the meters from that music because I know that there was a big resurgence and I think the meters were always in New Orleans always a staple since you guys started in my in my as far as I know um, but amongst my community the meters in like the t- early 2000s had this major resurgence and funk music and whatever do you think that applies a little bit to all these samples and that people found you through that I, I don't know. I don't know because I still think in the you know um, in the black community the meters are still unknown, right? To some degree, I'm not sure how how much in the R and B community uh, the influence the the uh, hip hop influence those guys are aware of the meters. I'll tell you a great story. We was out on tour with Taj Mahal, and we had two two spots that we was going to do without Taj, and then yeah. we was going to meet Taj again yeah. um, Monday or Tuesday um, uh, um, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, but that first night that we got out there, we played this college, and the, the group that went on before us was sort of like a hip hop kind of group, you know, and uh, and they were doing, but they were doing all the original stuff and no no meter samples, yeah. you know, at, at all. And um, and they were they were all on their campus. They were students. Yeah. Uh, um. So when we came out, and it wasn't the meters. I, I'm telling you, it was the funky meters. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we you know we started we playing the gig, and I think Cordova was like the third song, in the set or something like that. Yeah. And uh, man, you know, 
we started off Cordova, and and it's like the side, the side, the whole side of the stage like filled up with the the whole band. Must have been about fifteen of them. They all ran to the wings of the stage and was standing there. And was oh, and it was all excited. We you know kept lifting, and but because we didn't do the rap part <laughs> that they know yeah. to any of the songs. Yeah, you know they all was kind of like you know, and then they walked away. Yeah, and then we played uh we played um I think we played Jungle Man again. Yeah. They all ran to the to yeah. the, to the thing. Uh, uh, we did Africa and a whole bunch of them ran to the thing. You know because of uh, because of the uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so at the end of the night, uh, uh um, the guys was the, the drummer. Got tight with but with Russell, you know, because yeah. they were smoking pot. Yeah. And uh and 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 uh and he said, man, he's got to tell Russell. He said, man, that was really interesting how you guys took those songs, you know, and and and, and you know uh uh and he he called off the names of the songs and said how y'all took those songs and what y'all did with them, you know. Right. And Russell said, you damn fool, that's <laughs> meters, that's the meters music. You know, dumb dumb assholes took the meters music, but he was yeah. like. Man. Russell, wow. Russell, Russell threw the joint on the floor, man, and walked away. You a damn fool. Wow. <laughs> that is crazy. Please stick around. We'll be right back after this short break. Going back to the 70s, so Rejuvenation comes out, which has like just, you know, big, big songs. I mean, that's mostly a vocal record, right? Right, so right, what, what, right. what was the inspiration at that point? Like, what was the the uh, the big change that kind of inspired that album? And, you know, songs like Just Kiss My Baby and People Say and Africa that are kind of like staples are on that record, but the sound of the band, you know, seemed to evolve and change at that point. Yeah, uh, the band definitely had that sound. I I started using chords, uh, 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 phrase shifts on my bass. Yeah, yeah. And the and the and the uh, the sound of that record, you know, I'm assuming at that point you've got more tracks you can multi-track. There's right, layered right. guitars. Um, one of the things about those previous records too, it, which is really interesting, and I've discovered this when I actually had to learn the songs to play with you guys because at one point I had subbed for Ian Neville this is so long ago Funky Meters at, at, at like a festival in Jersey and then I also played with y'all in, oh, yeah. in LA but yeah, what I, I discovered that. when I was learning this music is that if you take those early records and you pan left or right you can get like if you go to the left you got drums and bass if you go to the yeah. right you got guitar because I'd be trying to figure out the guitar part and then I just panned it to the right and I was like oh shit there it is, <laughs> there it is. so <laughs> those records but it was kind of cool That was it was like these mono drums on one side and then but then with Rejuvenation you've got layers and Leo's obviously like playing rhythm and, and overdubbing guitar and, uh, and doing all these different types of things now were you guys uh excited by these new options and were, were you still i mean was alan heavily involved in this record no alan Toussaint was never involved in any of our recordings really any of our recordings no he's just uh, he's um he was our producer on paper only interesting 
he may have influenced one song. Yeah. One song. And and and, and this, the name of that song was The Same Old Thing. Okay. And, and and he influenced that song because we were listening to the playback of a track and Alan stuck his head in the in the door and uh and was looking at and and uh, uh, uh and he, he the words that came out of his mouth, oh, some more of the same old thing. And uh uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh. And it was a, you know, it was a song that I brought to the band. Yeah. And you know, and um, it was—it's kind of like broke my heart because I say, yeah. "Oh, jeez," <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you know. I, I know it was like, "Wow," you know. So, and Skip Godwin, the engineer, and he said, "Man, that's a good title. We should use yeah, that." <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's funny. But in the creating of uh, Rejuvenation, was it, were you guys in a different studio for that one? Uh, Rejuvenation was done. Uh yes, by now by now I think Rejuvenation may have been the first record we recorded in C Saint Studio, actual studio. I know that you have always been a gear guy as far as, you know, since I've known you. Has that been an obsession for you back in the day? Cuz I also wanted to confirm something else. Did you actually work at Jazz Fest doing sound like stuff? not sound, okay. not sound. I was I was I was more the stage manager. Right, right. Uh, uh, I I was the, I was the person that was the, the I was the person between gear needs right and gear has. So <laughs> okay. you know, okay. Uh, um, so it, um, whoever the, the the production manager for the for the band was you know was was sent us. Uh, their their gear needs. Yeah, yeah. I would tell my guys, you know, this is what we need. This needs to go up, and we, we'll preset stuff to come and go quickly. Yeah. Uh, um. There was just a few, not a, just a few times, but a lot of times that there were, we would get bands that sent in a blank sheet as their stage plot. You know? Right, right. And, 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 and so that those guys were my hardest guys to deal with, you know, because because we have to do. We have to do it on the on the spot, you know. Right. It can't pre pre set this stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, no, uh, Cosmo Matassa and Roberta probably working with uh, uh, when um, when we when they first opened Sea Saint. Yeah. Um, um, Cos and, and Roberta would be in the studio uh, all all hours of the night, you know, working out stuff. Yeah. And uh, and 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 and. And I, I used to go down there and be and just hang with them. Right. Know? Well, the evolution you can, you can hear that on these records. You know, it's funny because I like I love the old stuff, but I also really you know love hearing that evolution. And I think you have taken that evolution into your own projects as well. And uh, you started singing a lot more, obviously, when you started your solo projects, Running Partners. Um, PBS, uh, but were you, you were singing all along in the meters, but not, but not, no, much, no, they, they no. wouldn't let me sing on records, none right, of the recordings. Right. I would, I could, I, I had to do those background parts on the on the road. Okay, because I used to, but, I knew you sang backgrounds, but I guess that's just on the on the road primarily. When did you start singing lead and playing bass? Because that is an interesting project right there to tackle is to play the play intricate bass lines and still be able to sing you know, freely. I'm still learning how to do that, bro. <laughs> I, I, I have, I have so many songs that I've recorded that, you know, um, 
that I can't play now because I can't sing them and play them. Right. You know, because I, you know, I, 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 when I wrote the song, I wrote the song as a musician, and then uh, I got I got lyricists to write lyrics for me. Then I sang the song. And I like the lyrics that they said, and they work really well with the song. But then when I try and put them both together, yeah, you know, it's that oh wow, this don't work. And there's a lot of songs that I've done that um, I have made a little effort to um, play a smaller bass line, yeah, and to in order to get the words the words to work well, right? You know, right. Um, and I have not been able to play the, the more intricate bass line and and, and, and and lessen the vocal part. I haven't done it. So it's, it's, it seems to be much easier to lessen the bass line. Right, right. I mean, I, I, I'm still learning how to do that, man. I mean, I got, I, we just finished the Running Partners new record. Yeah. And, and, and three of those songs, I had to go back in and redo the bass line. Right, you know, because right, right. when I put the vocal part on, I realized, that, oh my God, I can't do this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you do think about that in recording environment? Because my my problem is I record everything and I stack it, and then I'm like, oh shit, now I got to play this live and try to sing it, and that's when the 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 rub starts to happen. But uh, I'm, well, yeah, no, but no, but that's after the it's after the fact. Right. I'm um, right. hopefully. One of the good parts about it is that having the studio at home, I don't have to pay to learn that to learn that story. You know, yeah, I, yeah, you, know yeah. you have to go pay somebody else to figure that out. You know, say, oh man, I got to go back to this hundred fifty dollars an hour studio and yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and do this. I I do it at home. You know, so yeah. that's that's the wonderful part of of, of of doing it. But no, I still haven't done it. Like I said, the the new record that we just did, three of the songs, I have to go back in and redo the bass lines. Right, right, right. So in the last like decade or two. Um, you have, you know, kind of become one of the one of the kings of of what you might call the jam band scene, um, and it's an interesting world because obviously bands like the Grateful Dead and and um, you know later on Fish, you know, and have kind of created this world and this community that follows these bands. And part of the inspiration of these people following the bands is that they change their set list and they collaborate with different people. Um, I'm curious when you became aware of that world and, and uh, cause you know, the, the, the music of the Grateful Dead and the music of the meters are very different things, but there are things that, that, work together and I'm I'm curious like when you kind of became aware of that scene and and how you felt about being kind of like embraced by it Steve Kimmock okay. probably is is the uh, is the uh, is my introduction into uh, I knew of the Grateful Dead yeah you know long before that uh, I knew that uh, when the Nevilles had been doing stuff with the Grateful Dead right. every, pretty much every New Year's or something like that. Yeah. Um, but I didn't know much about, you know, the Dead, you know, what they do and how they did it. And and um, and I, I, I can't say that until until Steve got me to play in Mickey Hart's solo band that I knew much about the music. Um, but I remember meeting Bill Kurtzman. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, years before Steve had contacted me, it was doing a uh, doing a Mardi Gras um, in New Orleans, and 
and I was playing a gig with this guitar player named John Mooney. And we were playing at the um, the club on, on uh, oh, it's actually with the Lobonto on Magazine Street. Yep, yep. And uh, it's Kenny Blevins with the drummer, John Mooney and myself. It was a trio. And um, some the guys, some guy came, I don't remember who that was. He came in and said, hey man, we got the, the drummer from the Grateful Dead here, um, um, Billy Kersman. He wants to sit in and play, play, you know, play Ico Ico with you guys. Yeah. And uh, uh, so, you know, Mooney knew who the Grateful Dead was. I knew the name, but I didn't know, you know, I didn't know anybody. So, um, so Christmas sits down, gets behind the drums, and uh, and and you know, and, and immediately goes into the song, you yeah, know. Yeah. And uh, uh, um, and John Mooney just kind of turned around and looked at him and said, and he said it on the mic, like he was really, a, he really wasn't a, a, a very pleasant person at yeah. that time. Yeah. Uh, it was probably the third set, and, he, and everybody had been juiced up and stuff. And he just kind of told him, he said, man, what the hell is that you playing? That ain't Ico Ico. Yeah. <laughs> you know? You know, but Billy was playing the Ico Ico that the dad played, yeah, you know, was, which was a totally different pocket, you know? And uh, 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 and so Mooney asked, John, asked him to, you know, to stop, and Mooney set up the groove, and Billy would play the groove that he knew, you know, yeah, and, and, yeah. And, 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 and you know, and John Mooney stopped him again and said, "Man, that's the bullshit you playing. What is what is that, you know?" And at that point, Kersman, you know, being the kind of guy he is, you know, he would have walked over and punched him in the face. He kind of got up and left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and that was my first my first meeting with Billy Kersman, you know. Wow. And uh, uh, it was like uh, it was you know. Shit, 20 years later when I got to meet him again the first time I got to meet him and you know, yeah. and uh, with with uh with Papa Molly and uh and, and he uh, he remembered that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was so embarrassed. I said, "Oh man, you remember that?" Oh yeah. man. But yeah. well, no, Steve Kimock brought me into the to the Mickey Hart band thing and and um I thought I thought that um, you know when I started listening to the songs, I said, "Damn man, why are they calling me, bro? You know, I'm not I'm not that I don't play like that, you know." Yeah. And, and I think Mickey tolerated it. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, you know, and I I kind of learned how to play a little bit more, a little bit a little more busier. But I had kind of learned over you know with my years with Alan, is that it's not how much you played, it's what you didn't play. Yeah. That made the shit work, you know. Uh, um, so it was like, wow! I mean, I'm have, I'm learning how to play differently, and I was playing I was playing more sixteenth notes and stuff like that, you know. Uh, um, and I remember Stanton Moore saying, um, "I came home off that tour, and um, I, I sat in somewhere. Oh, I was out playing on the gig with Johnny Badakovich. Yeah. And Stanton Stanton told me at the end of the night, he said, "Man, that's interesting, bro. That you're playing those sixteenth notes like that, man. He never heard you play that before." And said, yeah. "Yeah, I stopped doing that thirty years ago." Yeah, right. <laughs> you know? oh, oh, I say, yeah, I stopped doing that thirty years ago. You say, "Oh, yeah, well, cool, man." You know, but um, but then it was the the um, Kirschman, uh, Papa Molly, Matt, uh, Matt. Him, uh, Hubbard, yeah, the um, Seven Walkers, Walkers band yeah. got me more deeper into the dead stuff than the Mickey Hart band was, um, and 
There were more songs. I learned more songs because that band played. You know, the Mickey Hearts, we played the Sam, I think the Sam, nine to ten songs all the time. It didn't change. But, but, the, but the Papa Molly, he wanted, to, he wanted to be more like the dead and, you know, and have have this, you know, have this 200 song list, you know, right. and, and, and stuff like that. So uh, uh, every, almost every sound check, we were learning two new songs, you know. And um, so, yeah, I got that. But Billy, you know, liked the pockets that I created. Yeah. Rather, rather than those busy, those busier bass lines that you know that that was being played, and 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 he, you know, because Billy is a big fan of New Orleans music. Oh yeah, always has, you know, and he always claims it because he has, you know, his his grandparents is from New Orleans, Louisiana, you know, so he he claims or he, he claims rights. To, yeah, yeah, know? yeah. I guess over the time, and then you know when I started singing. In the in the Seven Walkers band singing some of those days, the well, the, singing the one dead song. I think yeah. it was Sugar Reed. Right. Billy Christmas told me, "Say, hey, bro, that's your song now, bro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you 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 own that one, you know. And uh, and and, and you know, that was got there. until the recently I did the I, I played with the uh, Dead and Company in New Orleans. Yeah. And uh, and we did Sugar Reed, and I got a, a, a standing ovation, and you know, and it was the, the whole building kind of went to a rumble, you know, because of the, uh, the 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 version that I was doing of the song. Um, and, and I've added f- a few more of the song. I do, I do Eyes of the World. Um, I do um, Black Muddy. Most recently with Steve Kimmock's band, I do Black Muddy River. Yeah. You know, and but I I know I got a I have a long list of songs that I could play, yeah. not sing, but just play. You know. Yeah, yeah. When did the Porter's signature tie dye come into uh, come into play? Was that from that era, or has that been? Is <laughs> that go further back? <laughs> it goes it goes way way back. Okay, okay. But it's a it's a resurgence. It's, it's a, a resurgence. resurgence. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 um, you know, I thought that. I was I was playing in a Grateful Dead band, and mostly I don't think when I was out with Mickey Hart, I don't think I was doing much of tie dye. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but with Seven Walkers, uh, I, I I know I I just you know the, um, I met uh, um, Ben Jamin. Right. And uh, and I had I had some fake tie dyes, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and and, and Jamin said, "Bro, we can't have you out here with that fake stuff." Bro. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta get the real stuff. You gotta, you gotta get the real stuff, bro. So, I mean, he gave me a suitcase for the stuff. Yeah, you know, yeah. stuff. I had to actually go buy a suitcase to take it <laughs> to take the time because he was every uh, every couple of other gigs and he would bring me three or four shirts. You know, they would bring yeah. me new stuff. You know, as the festival scene um, grew and things like Jam Cruise and and Bowl Live, you know, you and I have gotten to work together on so many different things. I feel like, you know, besides this pandemic, unfortunately, but before that, you know, I see you every couple months and we do something interesting and it's usually a little bit different. We've kind of got our staple things we do together. We do the the Mexico trip. We do uh, Bowl Live. We call you the king of Bowl Live because <laughs> every year, everybody, as soon as we announce we're doing it, everyone always says, George, George. They're always commenting. We're like, don't worry, George is going to be there. Um, but it, it's been such a great experience for me to to play with you in all these different settings. And um, 
what people that maybe don't realize about you is that I think you're able to play all these different styles. Like you're known as this New Orleans funk um, kind of, you know, legend to it. But, you know, you're able to play in all these different feels um, and so many different styles. Does that come from, you know, back in the day playing with guys like Snooks playing on Bourbon Street? Um, as far as, you know, learning the, the and, and New Orleans also, I think what people don't realize too, is that it does encompass a lot. Cause like rock and roll, um, and blues and so many different styles, you know, if they weren't born in New Orleans New Orleans took them to a different place, you know, yeah. in my, in my, in my eyes. But do you attribute that to, to like growing up in New Orleans and playing with all these people down there? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and, and, and one of the things that I, I think that I learned really well and, and very early in, in my life is that um, as a young player, I, 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 I learned that um, when, I, when I get hired to come play in somebody's organization, you know, um, I, I have to learn to be what's needed you know i don't always always want to bring um my entire meaning or, or try and go and overtake you know somebody's game. now i've been i've been i've been accused of doing it uh, <laughs> <laughs> denise denise always would she would tell me oh she said uh, she said, "Oh, you just go to those people gigs and you just take over." <laughs> and she said, "I've watched, I've watched you." Do. I said, "I don't do no taking over." She said, "She said, yeah, I've watched you do that to uh, to, to Eric uh, to Krasno all the time. The bow live thing, you go in there once you get on stage, you just take the stuff over." You know, <laughs> we love that though. See, that's the thing. That's the thing is that. Um, for Bowl Live, which is you know, our Soul Live residency every year, for you guys that don't know out there, but every time we do a night, you know, we have to plan and write a set list and blah da 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 da. And then it, now that we usually do two nights with you because we love it so much, but when it gets to your night, sure, we kind of will throw songs around, but we kind of don't have to worry about it because we're like when George is on stage, he's we're, we're letting him. You know, there'll be times when we'll we'll jump in and take over, but we love the fact that. We can we call you you know you the, you the captain, we want you know and we love that because you we're we're not worried when you're up there like we can follow you and and um, at this point we have enough of a repertoire that you know and and a lot of times you'll bust out songs we don't even know but I think the part, <laughs> yeah. the part of it is having the ears and the ability to to follow and I think uh, we like that we like that test. You know what I mean to to see if we can hang and follow where you're going. And, and we and we've had some some really good times. But I I really always be I just love when I, I'll find one of those bass lines. Yeah. And you jump on that bass line, but I mean you be playing that groove. You yeah. know, and, and, and man, that stuff just opens so wide up, man. You know, yeah. it just opens. You know, and, and man, man, it's just I I just have so much fun playing with you guys. You know. Uh, um, you know, and it's 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 always easy. It's always easy, man, when you have a drummer with big ears. Yeah, you know? yeah. And his 
big, huge ears, man, that hears everything that goes around. And everybody in your band, man, Soul Live, that whole band, this just got wonderful ears, man. You know, I appreciate there's, it. There's no, there's no doubt that when you just go off the side of the bridge, you know, that, you know, they're going to come with you, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we all go, we all go hit the ground together, you know? And that's, that's, that's what it's supposed to be like. There's not that many people I'll jump the, off the bridge with, but uh, with you, anytime. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, some of the some of those moments, man, and sometimes when Neil will hear your bass and start getting underneath the and playing his bass with you and uh Yeah. The best moments really are those improvised moments that then become a theme. You know what I mean? Like you'll play a riff, we'll catch that riff, and then we might just end on that riff or that'll become the new that'll become the new song. Um yeah, yeah. those are great moments. And that's something I really miss right now. You know what I mean? It's like one thing to be playing through the internet and to be playing at home, but that that so that interaction and I think the crowd is part of it too cuz I think one of the things with Bowl Live and kind of the jam scene in general, it goes beyond genre. Um, even though people do relate it to the Grateful Dead and that scene, you know, it, it isn't really about genre. It's about the fact that they're there with you and they want to hear that spontaneity they want to be part yeah. of something that's not like a worked out exact set that you play night after night you know what i mean right, right. so i think that excitement that that we get they get it and it feeds each other you know what i'm saying all right George. nice talking with you Eric. yeah thank you for taking the time you love that beautiful baby god man that little, that little guy is beautiful yeah man. man he's pretty cute he's pretty damn cute i'm biased but man he, he's, he's a cute one well, I hope he gets to meet uh, Uncle George sooner than later, man. Yeah, you're right, bro. All right, you're man. Right. Uh, let's give we'll a hug to, to you Denise. guys. All right, much love, man. Will do. Later. Bye-bye. I want to thank George Porter Jr. for being on the show today. What an incredible dude and just an amazing spirit, an incredible musician. So inspiring to hang and talk with him. Before we go, I'm going to play a song from the Luca Pie Pie album by The Meters that originally came out in 1970, and this track is called Pungy.
Eric Krasno Plus One is hosted by me, Eric Krasno. Executive producers are RJB and Christina Collins. Audio production by Matt Dwyer. Produced by myself and Ben Baruch of 1111 Group. All original music is by me, and most of which are instrumentals from my album, Telescope, under the artist name Kraz. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email krazplus1 at gmail. That's K-R-A-Z-P-L-U-S-O-N-E at gmail.com. Send me some questions. Maybe I'll answer them on air. Send me suggestions of other guests you'd like to hear on the show. Thanks again for tuning in. I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.